Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Team America World Police would play or some shit. <laughs> this song's gonna be stuck in your head. It's too bad I don't know any of the lyrics. <laughs> this is Bajna Kavaglav. Am I pronouncing that right? Bajna Kavaglav. Bojna. Probably not. Bojna. That is a Bojna Kavaglav. No, well, even if I'm mispronouncing that name, it's still going to be stuck in your head. Yep. It's going to be, I guarantee you. I'll put the link in so someone can uh, listen to it. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History at Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. And we're just listening to uh, Yugoslavian breakup music. <laughs> That's so a really something, great way to put it. Yeah, Yugoslavian breakup music. So something I like to share, and I share this with people on the Patreon all the time. I love listening to like nationalist songs, like <laughs> these ethnic nationalist songs. Like there's one from that Sad song. Well, I guess that's not oh, really yeah. ethnic. That's more of like a bath party nationalist song. But yeah, it's really it's really interesting. And there was these all these Yugoslavian war songs that were created um, you know, during the breakup of Yugoslavia. So all these different ethnic groups, like the Serbians had their songs, and then you know the uh, Croats had their songs, and the Bosnians had their songs, and the Slovenians had their songs, and it was like a war of music. Yep. It's really and the bizarre. music videos. The music videos are clutch. They're just like, look at our cool soldiers, and oh, I'm in a tank, and I'm gonna jump over this fence with this like machine gun. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's so <laughs> like they're trying another so hard one. to look cool. Roki right, Volovic. This is right, my shit. Roki Volovic. Yeah, this one's got a good beat. I actually kind of like pro, this one. This is the pro um, Bosnian Serb song. Yeah, you want you want to play it? All right, let's do it. <laughs> Fair, but yet I'm 
did this, uh, what is this, accordion? <laughs> I dig this. <laughs> Panthers, Panthers. Yo, what's up with this dude with the sunglasses, yo? <laughs> I love when the beat drops. You, you like that part? Yeah. You are brave boys. Your accomplishments are proven. <laughs> this the time has shown that you're real fighters. I'm reading the I'm reading the uh English translation. Here. Yeah. Um, yeah, but they're so they're so bizarre and they're so interesting. You need to look at the watch the videos. And um, there's a YouTube video of somebody breaking down like the origins of all these, like the record label and all this. It's really interesting. I'll, I'll probably I'll try to find that and put that in the notes. But um, today, we're the reason why we're playing this music. Oh, by the way, we did something. We talked about this type of music before when we were doing our episode on Armenia and mm-hmm. Azerbaijan. Remember the war of music that was going on? Those music videos. Yes. Those those were those are pretty cool too, actually. All right. Well, we're, the reason why we're playing is because we're talking about um, we're going to be talking about the current conflict going on in Bosnia. Um, a lot of you guys have been asking us to talk about this, and um, there's just so many things to talk about. It's hard to kind of drill down, and um, I think today we're going to be talking about kind of like a higher level version of this. Um, I guess we'll, we'll be addressing the, the conflict right now with the, poten- with the potential uh, secession of the Serbian faction of the government over there because that's, what's, uh, that's been going on. But we figured yeah. we can give a high level overview of the history of the region. <clears throat> and, and, you know, and, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I, sorry, I just figured I wanted to say out loud that we spent the last 20 minutes discussing like, what angles we can pursue and and we're intentionally going to leave a lot of stuff out because there's even things that that we just don't quite understand yet and for me personally you know reading and and doing um research on this particular area i feel like this this balkan region is as difficult for me to pin down as you know uh even right down to the geography of it all uh, is as hard for me to figure out which states are which uh, as like I don't know looking in the center of uh, of the United States and trying to pin down which states are are which there you know uh, and, and that's just kind of like a high level you know uh, uh, overview of, of if I can't figure out where all the states are I definitely am gonna have some trouble following all the history behind it too and you know it's it's fascinating reading all about the different ethnicities and 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 kind of the diasporas that are all over the place and how that relates to the 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 nationalization and the creations of nation states and and national identities kind of around that very um mixed diverse place you know well when we talk about today's episode i think it will be more of kind of like a 101 version of it we're not going to go into every single ethnic cleansing campaign so forgive us we're not trying to intentionally leave out you know different ethnic cleansing campaigns that have gone on um, we're just trying to do more of like a one-on-one high-level thing. But if you guys want, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do episodes on this and uh, try to, because it's impossible to do something on in an hour and a half um, on on the breakup of Yugoslavia and, and uh, you know, the balkanization of that region. But something that we talk about a lot is we use the term balkanization a lot in, in different episodes. 
And typically, mm-hmm. when we talk about balkanization, we're um, phrasing it as a potential political solution to some type of internal conflict caused by either an ethnic or a sectarian division. Hell, I mean, partisanship in the United States is becoming so sectarian that you could even talk about it as a potential political solution here in the U.S. Right. I mean, there's already mm-hmm. maps online that you can find, you know, how can we actually divide the United States so people don't want to kill each other anymore? Um, right. But to balkanize a country... The bigger question is, is should we, to too? divide a country <laughs> up know? into smaller ethnically or sectarian homogeneous states. And the term comes from the end of World War One. So it, it was used to describe the ethnic and political fragmentation that followed the partition of the Ottoman Empire. Um, you know, specifically though in the Balkans, because, you know, the Ottoman Empire stretched from the Middle East to the Balkan regions and um, that's hence where the word balkanization comes from, like the, the partition of the Ottoman lands that were in the Balkan the Balkan Peninsula. However, you know, balkanization can take place, and as a term, it can take place anywhere. So, you know, one, one an example that you could use that we've been talking about a lot is Ethiopia. You know, it certainly seems like um, Ethiopia may be on a road to some sort of balkanizations with the war up north in the Tigray region. And there are many different ethnic groups in the government they set up, uh, the ethnic federal government they set up. It seems like almost a recipe for an eventual um, secession and balkanization of that of the different um, you know zones. But um, right now, the reason why we're going to introduce this is because there's a political crisis in Bosnia and um, Herzegovina, um, aka Bosnia, and um, the so Milorad Dodik. So he's a Serb member of Bosnia's presidency. Last month, he announced that the country's Serb-run entity, the Republic of Srpska, will leave Bosnian state institutions. So I just want to stop you right there because this is, this is the first thing that really confused the hell out of me that I'm sure at least some people that are listening to this will be confused about. When we're talking about Bosnia, Herzegovina, or Bosnia just generally, we're talking about a sovereign nation state that has a internal Serbian-run entity within it. But that is distinctly different from Serbia, the other nation state, right? That is correct. So let me try to, to break this down. So the Serbian part of the government is trying to, or they say they want to reach full autonomy within the country. And what this does, Mm -hmm. it violates a peace accord in 1995 called the Dayton Peace Accords that ended the Bosnian War. The Dayton Peace Accords, they split Bosnia into two administrative entities. So you have Mm -hmm. the Serb-run entity, which is the Republika Srpska, and then the Bosnian Croat dominated federation entity. And this is confusing because the terminology, you know, the terminology as the uh, the republic and the federation, they're just parts of the state. They're not states in themselves. Mm-hmm. And what makes this more confusing is that after the war, um, you know, the state was actually under military occupation of NATO and under oversight of the UN. What so, the oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was I was just gonna say, and 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 to to make it even more um, confusing is that the fact that there is a Serbian state <laughs> all by itself yeah. that has that that's not that that's not related, I guess, in in this respect to Bosnia. So maybe a better question is just like, well, how did how did this crisis start? Yeah, well, we'll get into why you know there's Serbs and you know everywhere in the Balkans, mm-hmm. um, but the way that how this conflict started is well this is what the press is saying is that Dodik has been threatening to leave Bosnia for a while now but the current threat of secession stems from a decision that was made in July um, in the Bosnian government to ban genocide denial so in response this is like the New York Times version of it and, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it in response, mm-hmm. Dodik said that the Republic of Srpska is going to pull out all of their armed forces. They're going to pull their military out of the armed forces, and then the you know different some other administrative parts of the government, like the tax administration office and like the judiciary body. And he also said that Bosnian security and intelligence agencies they're going to be banned from operating in the Republic of Srpska, and they're going to so be replaced by Serb-only institutions. So let me get that straight then. You're saying that the Serbian Republic Srpska in Bosnia is pulling out ostensibly because they, Dodnik, doesn't like the idea of not being able to genocide deny? Is is that the going narrative? <laughs> that's kind of like the immediate response. That That's kind of like the latest... Um escalation of it but he's been saying that they want to leave for a long time so it's not like this is like the cause of it this is just kind of like the catalyst of the latest reason why there's like a uh, a more um i guess uh significant threat to leave the country but you know i think it makes sense to go over the background so um you have to send this back to yugoslavia the, the socialist federal republic of yugoslavia it was made up of six republics, Slovenia, Croatia, Montenegro, Macedonia, uh, Serbia, and then Bosnia, Herzegovina. And Bosnia was recognized as an independent state in the early months of 1992, an event which triggered the escalation of violence and plunged the, and plunged the country into a civil war that lasted three and a half years. Now, the political solution that ends this war is complex. So the U.S., they break, they brokered a deal in December of 1995 that officially ends the war in Bosnia. And like I said earlier, the deal split the country into two, uh, into a two-tiered government. So the Serb-run entity and then the Bosniak-Croat-dominated entity. And, um, you know, maybe I should go over th- the history of Yugoslavia to explain, you know, how all these countries were created in the first place. Um, so... Like I said earlier, these countries were part of the former Yugoslavia, which was ran by a strongman dictator for, for years, um, Tito. And the the Balkan Peninsula is, um, so just like kind of envision it, because I know you, you said that you're having trouble like kind of figuring out like what state and is the which. Ge- the geography is very, kind of The hard. geography. <laughs> so if you look at the Balkan Peninsula, it's bordered by... The Adriatic Sea in the northwest, the Ionian Sea in the southwest, the Aegean Sea in the south, and the Turkish Straits in the east, and then um, to the northeast is the Black Sea. So 
you can imagine like historically this was an area that was highly significant to regional superpowers so right. this land this this peninsula you know on the southern tip of it there's greece um you know this was in fact part of the roman empire it was called the province of uh illyricum and um the nucleus of this area has always been serbia which was settled around like the seventh century by south slav migrants who eventually convert to christianity in the ninth century and in the 1300s the serbians were at a medieval high mark and during their reign um with um with uh, stefan dushan you know allegedly the serbian empire ruled over this large chunk of the balkan peninsula um however 30 years after stefan dushan dies the Ottoman Turks conquered the Serbian Empire, and they mm-hmm. basically absorb, absorb all of their different peoples that were under their empire. Um, mm-hmm. So, have you ever heard of the Battle of Kosovo? We've we've talked about this in in our yeah. World War One episodes, and this this is the one where everyone dies, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's a large, and this is like you know we don't really it's hard to take the mythology out of the the, the historical facts. You know, there is mm-hmm. a lot of mythology surrounding this battle, but you know. It's, it's kind of a legendary moment. It's this large-scale pitched battle between the Serbians and the Ottomans where everyone in the battlefield allegedly dies. Like, you know, everyone's fighting to the very last breath. And, you know, the Serbians are fighting the Turks to the very last man. Um, Prince Lazar of Serbia, you know, he heroically fights to the last breath, you know, fighting off these Turkish Janissaries. And this battle... Um, the reason why Serbia it's not that Serbia lost this battle is because they expunded, expended all of their forces in this one battle, and then after that, they didn't really have anything left, and that's how the Ottomans were able to, um, you know, go on and wage war and. and well, I got a question about of, that. What I got a I got a question about that. So if everybody died, who was there? Who who was able to tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's why it's, somebody it's had shrouded in history. Right? Right. I'm sure some just like some random was... like goat farmer walks up on a field and sees just like thousands of people just dead, and was like, "Oh, I guess everyone died in this battle." <laughs> who was the back and tells what's, what's the guy who's supposed to tell the story in 300? What's the oh yeah He's yeah a... yeah. Um, I forget his name, but I know who you're talking about. And he yeah, goes back to Greek. to Athens or some shit like that to recruit the rest of them to fight against the Persians. Right? Mm-hmm. Had to have been had to have been at least one guy. To go back and tell the story. To be All right. Honest. Well, let's just Otherwise, assume there was the one story? guy. There was the exact same moment played out in the movie Three Hundred in the Battle of Kosovo. Let's just I'd pretend like to that. See, honestly, that I'd like to case. see a historical fiction movie about this, like Three Hundred. I think it would be badass, actually. Well, there's plenty in Serbia. They yeah, reenact sure. the battle. They reenact the Battle of Kosovo, like on its anniversary, um, like frequently. And let let me actually make the point here that this battle took allegedly took place on june 28th 1389 which is a very significant um holiday in in um in serbia um it's very significant to serbian national identity it's um Mm -hmm. it's celebrated as the battle uh, not the uh the battle celebrated as saint vitus day so and what's interesting about this is that june 28th is a date that is like very a lot of important events fall on june 28th 
um, not 13.89, but June 28th in general. So um, on June 28th in 1876, Serbia declares war on the Ottoman Empire, which eventually leads to their independence. Um, Archduke Fer- uh, Franz Ferdinand is assassinated on June 28th, 1914. Hmm. It's also a day that is historically used by Serbian uh, politicians and monarchs to you know foster some type of ethnic nationalism or to um, you know make some big p- political move. But you know pulling this back to uh, Serbia um, and in their, in their eventual independence. They get their independence in 1878. So for centuries, they're under Ottoman rule Mm -hmm. for many, many years. And uh, Bosnia um, were two lands conquered by the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. So Bosnia was in um, 1463 and and, uh, Herzegovina was conquered about 20 years later. And the people united into one administrative district by the Turks. So, hence the name. You know, it's a double country name. But mm-hmm. many of these people convert to Islam. That's why the Bosniaks are predominantly Muslim. And unlike Serbia, Bosnia doesn't get its independence after the Conference of Berlin in, in 1878. They become part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this directly leads to... Um, the events of World War One, at least you know the the kind of like the pop off moment, the the counter peg, mm-hmm. um, the black hand, the black hand, yeah, exactly. So um, Bosnia's capital is Sarajevo, which is which is uh, which is where Archduke Ferdinand is assassinated. But um, Serbia um, in the twentieth century becomes a cauldron of ultranationalist. So there's like secret societies. Um, you know, a big idea in Serbia was the idea of a greater Serbia, mm-hmm. which was a very pseudo-mystical, ultra-nationalist idea. And the tenets were, we need to restore greater Serbia, the greater Serbia of the pre-Ottoman Empire. Now, the problem, the idea of a greater Serbia was just the expansive concept of what a greater Serbia was. Because mm-hmm. when you're dealing with like long history or history that's really foggy and murky, you don't really know what, you know what's real and what's not real. There's really no historical... Yeah, where Serbia um, begins you, and you're, ends. You're dealing, yeah. with mytho- you're dealing with like mythology. I mean, let's just right. be real. You're dealing with, with, with mythology. There's a lot of... Um, things that are exaggerated. And some of these radicals considered things like every spot on which a Serbian Orthodox Church ever existed was Serbian territory. Or mm-hmm. there was a phrase in this in this time where wherever a Serb lived was Serbian territory. Right. We talked about this in our episode on uh, the origins of World War One. You can go back and listen to that if you're interested. Yeah, we, we go deeper into that. And it's actually a really, really interesting story um, the, with the, you know, Serbia in that time period in the 1800s was divided. It wasn't divided, but while it was an Ottoman vassal state, it was ruled by these two families that would just constantly assassinate each other. 
It was really mm-hmm. interesting. And then it just one would assassinate, you know, one prince, and then you know the other, another prince would be assassinated. Like you know, the opposite family would be assassinated. It was very interesting, and it was just um, if you're interested in like stories about like regicide and uh, political assassinations, that is just just nonstop political violence. Um, it's very Montague and Capulet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very is a perfect way to describe it. Um, but you know those two families. It's interesting seeing all the different dynamics that played into the beginning of World War One, you know, which leads to World War Two. But a lot of it starts here in this area. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of other geopolitical things that have been going on between, um, you know, um, Germany's isolation and stuff like that, and um, you know, them being the new kids on the block. But a lot of the, at least what the the initial shots and what caused the shots were all started, you know, down to the ethnic tensions that were going on in the Balkan region. Um, but I guess where where was I? I'm rambling. <laughs> so um, after the collapse of, oh, well, let me actually pull this back to, to these ultranationalist societies. So they actually started increasing their activities outside of Serbia and into the Austrian provinces of Bosnia. And they recruit a team of Bosnian fanatics to kill Archduke Ferdinand. And that's what cascades into World War I. Like Gavrilo Princip was in, in his, uh, you know, that group. They were young. The young Bosnians were young Bosnian Serbs who were recruited by um, Serbian intelligence agencies like the Black Hand to assassinate Archduke Ferdinand. But um, after the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so the multinational state of Yugoslavia was was basically just patched together in 1918 under the name the Kingdom of the Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes. And they annexed the old Austro-Hungarian lands of Slovenia, Croatia, as well as the ethnically Croatian and Serbian lands of Bosnia, Montenegro, Macedonia, and Kosovo. Mm-hmm. And these nationalities, they coexisted pretty much in a state of mutual hostility. And it, what it does, it provokes a royal dictatorship that was instituted by King Alexander in 1929, where the name officially changes to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. And King Alexander ends up being assassinated in 1934 by a Bulgarian nationalist group that was allegedly financed by fascist Italy because the Kingdom of Yugoslavia and Italy had these different rivalries over mainly the supremacy of Albania. But What's interesting about this assassination of King Alexander in 1934, it's the first assassination that's ever caught on camera. Yep. And it is bizarre. I sent you the video before. Yeah, man. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, obviously hard the to see anything. It's not the like, craziest thing. Yeah, the, the guy who's who's doing that commentary is, is like making, like ratcheting it up. And he's like, how he was talking about, all right, so they're, you know, they set the scene. He comes off of a cruiser, right? They get on a smaller boat. They go to the shore, and then he gets in a car. And it's like the um, it's him and uh, some other um, you know high level uh, like political dude. And they're both in this car, and they have this like motor, like quasi motorcade. And you know, they got like horseback riders on front, and there's like police lining the streets, holding the crowds back. Mostly, everyone's chanting like "Go Yugoslavia!" You know, "Go Alexander!" You know. And then you just hear these shots ring out. 
and then the camera gets all crazy. You can't really see too much there, but I mean, you know, even in today, you know, it'd be it'd be kind of difficult to see that. And you know, then you see you know him dying in the car, and apparently the crowd goes nuts and goes and gets the guy, the shooter, and the shooter tried to kill himself, uh, but they didn't let him, and they were going to beat him to fucking death. And I actually don't know how that story ends because I only got to see this video and it ends before they tell me whether or not they actually did that. But um, it was pretty fascinating, dude. It was it was interesting. Old 1930s, like, flick with, like, a, a very interesting narrator. Uh, you know, kind of like that. Oh, he's so regal. He's such a regal. The king is like the... The, the king of Yugoslavia, King Alexander, with his beautiful wife. He is such a regal, wonderful king. Oh, he is shot. He's been That's shot, a, people. He, and he's the crowds shot. are crazy. He's like, oh, he's been shot. But it was like he called it like it was like, oh, like a double play. Yeah, it wasn't like, a like play in by horror. Play, it was like, like oh, he's been shot. <laughs> like it was. Or like a. Like, or, um. Or, um, like a you know, a strikeout or someone drops a fly ball. Like, he drops a fly ball. (laughs) Yeah, he said it just so matter-of-fact, like, you know. And it was obviously after the fact, too. They did the the overdub after, but, like... Yeah, I know. Maybe I'll play it so you guys can hear it. It's very... It's... I think it's something interesting. It's a throwback to another time, and I guess it's really not that long ago. It's 1934. Almost 100 years ago, I guess. Um, But I'll play it. You are about to see the most amazing pictures ever made. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia. The ill-fated ruler arriving in Marseille aboard the Yugoslavian cruiser Dubrovnik is visiting France on a mission of extreme importance. The final move in critical negotiations, he hopes, will cement the goodwill relationships of Yugoslavia, Italy, and France and banish the specter of war from the Adriatic and Middle Europe. As he hastens ashore where thousands are waiting to greet him and welcome him to France, the Balkan ruler is in a happy mood. He is on the eve of his greatest triumph, international amity for his country in the family of nations. And what a welcome he gets as he sets foot on French soil on the Quai des Belles in the ancient French port. He's to be escorted in regal fashion through the city to the railroad station, accompanied by the aged French foreign minister, Louis Barthou, mastermind of Europe's tangled diplomacy. To Barthou, too, the morrow in Paris promises the fruition of his greatest work for France, the building of a Latin Slavic bulwark across southern Europe against Germany and Hitlerism. And so the Balkan monarch and the revered French statesmen begin their fateful ride, the ride of death, little dreaming of the terrible catastrophe that awaits them a block or so away. Police line the streets, and a mounted escort rides ahead, but no trouble is expected. It's a gala day in Marseille. Vive Alexander! Vive Le Roi! Oh, they've been shot! Oh, he is dying, and Barthou's fatally wounded. The crowd is infuriated. The police can't hold them. It's an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. Pandemonium has broken loose. The mob is out to beat the man to death. They'll do it, too. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Now, Hitler invaded Yugoslavia in 1941. So when Hitler invades, German troops are actually welcomed in Croatia as liberators from the Serbs. So in World War II, um, Hitler really had no more willing executioners than the Croatians. Hmm. Like, they were pretty terrible Two like in yep. Balkans in Croatia, two genocides occurred simultaneously together in Croatia during mm-hmm. World War II. Um, you know, one that targeted the Serbs, and then another one that targeted the Jews. Where I think it was like eight hundred thousand or something like that that died, right? I don't know the exact very, number. Um, it was a very, I don't, very like, I don't high know, number. You know, it's hard. It's yeah. I mean, I don't like. It's hard to quote what the actual numbers are, but I mean, the numbers I saw is like with Jews, it's like. 90% of them were killed in, um, in mm-hmm. Croatia. I'm yeah. really not sure what the exact numbers are, though, um, of uh, people who are ethnically cleansed, but they were quite, yeah, I also read they that, were very that brutal. The, that the ways that, because they had a concentration camp set up out there, too, and apparently the the ways that they were executing um, both Serbs and Jews and, and other um, undesirables, as they would call them, uh, were so gruesome and, and brutal that even the Nazi officers that would go and like inspect the camps were like themselves disgusted, uh, which is saying a lot if you if you can get a if you can get that kind of reaction out of a Nazi, <laughs> then he must be doing something brutal. Yeah, I've I've read that as well that the Nazis were grossed out by how the Croatians ran their concentration camps, which is uh, mm-hmm. it's like a what. It's like, must have been pretty fucked up. (laughs) uh, Yeah. It must have been pretty bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Then again, you know, the Nazis also condemned the Japanese. Well, not the Nazis. A Nazi was condemning the Japanese um, invasion of Nanking. Nanking? Yeah. There's a book on it called The The Good Man of Nanking. It's about a Nazi. It's a a strange book because it's about a Nazi, a guy, you know, a bona fide Hitler Nazi who is like the hero of this book who's saving Chinese refugees and Chinese women from being raped from Japanese soldiers. 
it's i mean as it goes with nazis you know generally the pot calling the kettle black you know they they basically reflect what they what they do well tragedy so when and, and just to get back to this so when hitler invades yugoslavia resistance it so it it, it there's a resist, there's two resistance groups that hate each other so there's like this there's a serbian royalist chetniks and then who are loyal to you know the monarchy and then right. there's the partisans to the Yugoslav kingdom mm-hmm. the partisans which are a group of pan yugoslav communist and they're not serbian nationalist they're anti-german forces and they're led by joseph bros tito who is the, the strongman dictator um now the partisans are in Yugoslavia, and I'm no expert on World War II or anything like that, or or the resistance in Nazi Germany or in, in different theaters in Europe. But you know, high level, um, I've read that the Yugoslavian partisan forces were probably the most effective resistance movements in occupied Europe during World War mm-hmm. II. Yeah. They like they actually like a lot of resistance movements to the Nazis were kind of like nuisances, but in Yugoslavia, the partisans there were just real problems, like real, real, real problems that really impacted like the the the, the European theater. Um, now, by the end of World War Two, something like two million Yugoslavs had died in that region, and you know, many more were homeless. Um, mm-hmm. It was very brutal, and the partisan leader Tito. He becomes a new dictator of Yugoslavia. Now Tito, um, no, he creates the Federal Republic or the Federal People's Republic of Yugoslavia, and and uh, you know Bosnia um, was made one of Yugoslavia's six republics, along with Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, Montenegro, Macedonia. Um, you know Kosovo comes later um, after the, after like the initial breakup, but you know he is pretty hard on the Chetnik resistance um, as well as like, you know, the different Slovene, you know, there's different ethnic resistance. He, he's hard on them, you know, when, when they first formed this country. Um, but what interest, what's, what's interesting about Tito is that he actually refused to permit Yugoslavia to become a satellite state for the Soviet Union. So he actually expels all the Russian military advisors in there. Mm-hmm. And he expels the well. He was expelled from the common term, um, like the Soviet international, you know, uh, converting people to communist groups. But he actually looks to the West, and he starts to permit like levels of private ownership of land and in, in, in the industrial sector. So they're not completely communist, mm-hmm. um, which which actually does help lift Yugoslavia into ranks of uh you know semi-developed countries yeah i actually found this part kind of interesting and and did a little bit of digging into it because it sounds like at least this stage of yugoslavia there trust me there are plenty of questionable and and bad things that were going on uh obviously one of them being that there were a dictatorship but there was kind of a lot of interesting good things coming out of it and they were this weird middle ground between 
socialism, but socialism that wasn't Soviet, and nationalism, but nationalism that wasn't based around a, a particular ethnic identity. It was kind of interesting. So after World War II, uh, Yugoslavia was very obviously very multi-ethnic, and it was kind of a success economically. I read that between um, uh, 1960 and 1980, it actually had a really high growth rate, decent standard of living. Uh, apparently, they had medical, free medical care, free education, uh, guaranteed jobs, which I, I didn't read too much about, but there was some some mention there that like if you if you wanted a job and you live in Yugoslavia, you had you had a job. Uh, also, some things that the uh, you know socialists here in the United States would like a lot: a, a month of uh, free paid vacation. Um, also, a things month. like uh, they would like a, a month. year of they like a year of free paid vacation. <laughs> well, you know that's that's outside of the norm uh, generally, but especially in this time, you know, a month of paid free vacation. You hear about the non, uh, the no work movement? <laughs> yeah, I have actually, and it's it's kind of, um, in my opinion, counterproductive. But let's not go get down that a right job. Now. Uh, A couple other things. They they had um, uh, programs for affordable housing. Uh, They had affordable transportation, utilities, things like that. So people were living pretty good. Um, They had a super high literacy rate, apparently over 90%, which is uh, very high, especially in that time. Uh, Life expectancy averaged about 72. um, And most of the economy was in the public sector and not in the for-profit sector, which, um, you know, for better or for worse, worked out for them at the time, at least. Um, and then, you know, th- this is this is all stuff that's interesting because, you know, capitalism and just global capitalism, generally speaking, kind of runs contrary to that, um, especially, you know, having most of the economy run by a state, you know, or in the public sector rather than privatized and for profit. Um, but it was kind of allowed to exist in general because it was a buffer, as you pointed out, you know, to the Soviet states because they did deny you know, becoming a satellite. Uh, so there were this strange middle, like, child of, you know, socialist uh, um, socialist or socialist-esque uh, social welfare programs, but at the same time, not Soviet, not communist, and and also not capitalist, and also a dictatorship, but also somehow they were an economic success. You know, it was it was kind of a weird blend of shit that didn't seem to make sense, but it did at the time. So well, they, I found they that kind of were like a second tier or like the leader of third world countries, um, right? Or set the example for third world countries. Now, um, I mean, not everybody has to be the or United developing States, countries, you know? <laughs> if you want to be politically correct about the term. Um, but right. Yugoslavian nationalism, I think it's important to note this, that Yugoslavian nationalism masked the development of the ethnic nationalisms there. So you get back to Bosnia, um, the constant redrawing of Bosnia's borders had meant that ethnicity in the region became more based on religion rather than, than a national origin. Thus, That's right. a Serb who converted to... Um, like Roman um, Catholic Christianity was considered a Croatian, while a Croatian who converted to um, Eastern Orthodoxy was considered a Serb. And to both groups, converts to Islam appeared to be collaborators with the Ottoman Turks. So it was like this weird thing where like ethnicity and, you know, religion kind of combined, it crossed boundaries. And during Tito's dictatorship, 
um, the country's three major ethnic groups. So, um, you know, Serbs, Croats, um, you know, Muslims uh, um, were, you know, Muslims were considered an ethnic group. You know, they coexisted somewhat peacefully, but, you know, after Tito's death, um, or even after Tito's death in 1980, uh, the party adopted this collective leadership model with the party um, rotating its um, his presidency. So, you know, every single year you would have Everybody gets a different president. You, you, you get a Serb president, you get a Slovene president, you get a Croat. Um, so you, the different groups were represented in the, in the executive office. Um, but the party's influence declined and, you know, the party began to move to a more federal structure, giving more power to, um, you know, party branches in the different republics that made up Yugoslavia. So, mm-hmm. um, um, Milcevic, uh, became president becomes president of the League of Communists in Serbia in eighteen in nineteen eighty seven, and you know he combines these certain Serbian nationalist ideologies with with opposition to liberal reforms, and when communism fell in nineteen eighty nine, only Serbia and Montenegro voted for communist governments, while all the other republics voted against it. So. Uh, Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia, um, Bosnia—they they sought their independence, and um, Croatia and Slovenia declared their independence in 1991, forcing Bosnia to, to choose between um, you know independence or just a diminished role in a Serb-dominated Yugoslavian state. So, so you know, that leads to them voting for their independence in March of 1992, which, I, you know... Oh, what? No, go ahead. Finish your thought, and then oh. I had something on this. So, yeah, you know, they their vote for independence is what kind of kicks off th- this vicious civil war um, in which Yugoslavia's Serbian president um, sought to, you know, keep all ethnically Serbian areas under Serbian control. I, I wanted to point something out that's interesting in, in this timeline because, you know, you, you're right that the there was a party influence decline uh, and, and a move to a federalist structure around this, this time as well. There's like also a lot of things going on that, that um, I think we, we decided to not go into great detail uh, on right now, but I do want to point out just kind of on the top end this this wasn't entirely just an internal shift there's also external influences on this shift uh generally speaking that that does help with this change um in particular you know united states uh influence in this uh through our foreign uh foreign aid programs definitely played a pretty big part into it and i don't want to go too deeply into this and maybe we will save this for a different episode if you guys are interested but there is uh a 1991 foreign appropriations act uh which was kicked off in 1990 by george bush where effectively george bush went to congress to cut off aid and credit to yugoslavia and at the time 
you know, in the in the in the early seventies or, or eighties, just be, like twenty years before that, Yugoslavia started opening up their their um, their government to Western capital, uh, which obviously creates you know IMF influence into it, you know, and of course IMF debt, uh, and that causes austerity measures and demands from the IMF. Uh, so th- there is some external components to this that's 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 separate and distinct from the ethnic issues that we're talking about here. Um, but I didn't want to I didn't want to give you know our listeners the impression that this is entirely just a like an internal uh, shift that there was a lot of externalities placed on this that that definitely I don't want to say that they caused it because I'm not certain myself yet. But I, I definitely think that they played a role, for sure. Um, and in particular, this this 1991 Foreign Appropriations Act stipulated that if you wanted aid, you have to declare independence from Yugoslavia, which, you know, you know that might have just been the the straw that breaks the camel's back there. Uh, but it's certain that economic incentive certainly plays a part in the way that these that these individual ethnic uh, um, kind of states start to. Um, seek independence i think that's kind yeah. of important so i don't know the i don't know the reason behind u.s foreign policy to um pursue a balkanization measure against yugoslavia i'm not exactly sure what made them do that or the, the, what or what is like the real reason why they wanted to right. do that um, I think I've read paper, plenty of theories, but I don't think I I don't think I'm feel comfortable enough to like cool. talk about them yet. According to according to like the United States, they would just say that they're doing it because the Serbians are dominating the other groups right now, mm-hmm. and you know they want peace and stability in the Balkan the Balkan Peninsula, and that's why they wanted to pursue a policy of um, balkanizing the region and dividing the region up, and that's why they were holding the 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 carrot in front of these other nations i think that's mm-hmm. the reason on paper for u.s policy i'm not sure if there's another policy that underlines that there probably is one that's probably a little bit more selfish than that so yeah um i, I yeah, like i said I, I i've read a lot of different theories about this and and i i just don't feel confident enough in what the actual truth is or at the very least, I don't feel confident enough in dis- in in talking about the the competing narratives around why the United States pursued this type of policy. Um, maybe maybe we can follow up on another episode. But I just wanted to make sure that when we're talking about you know the breakup of Yugoslavia, that we weren't um, focusing so hard on just the internal you know um, ethnic makeup and and the, and the role that that played, which admittedly was a large reason, but. There, there was a lot of foreign, uh, you know, out external influence that that definitely, definitely played a big part into why, why Yugoslavia fell. Yeah, well, you know, another thing was just because of the. Let me just pull this back. Even if a country, even if there was outside influence, and we talk about this with like Syria and um, Iraq. In different countries in the Middle East, where there was very, there was a very clear policy to break up these countries into sectarian nations, like to break mm-hmm. them, create not in in um, well, I guess in, in a combination of ethnicity, ethnicity, ethnicity and religion. You know, Middle East they want to break up states into 
a Shia state, a Sunni state, and a um, you know a Kurdish state, and ma- mainly that is to deal with Israeli influence, like to make sure there's no other strong country in the region that can compete with Israel militarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so certain that this is the case in in Yugoslavia, though. I think I don't think any, anybody was particularly worried about Yugoslavia being a you know local powerhouse, you know, disrupting that i i think mm, i don't want (laughs) to i almost don't want to say it because like i know that some stuff that i read feels kind of conspiracy theorist well well, the point the point i'm trying to make is that even if there is external actors who are trying to break a country up doesn't mean that ticking time bomb wasn't there in the first place that's right I, i agree with that fully yeah so you're right and let's just use Syria as an example. And, you know, there was a very clear international effort to divide the country. So to look at the Kurdish region up north right now. I mean, basically, the Idlib province is still kind of balkanized with, with radical um, Salafists. But mm-hmm. those divisions in the country were already there. Those And the way that country was set up, its power structure is that there's a mi- there's minority groups that banded together and dominate the majority group. So mm-hmm. the minority group being this like Sunnis are I think around seventy percent of the population in Syria, or sixty to seventy percent. I don't know the exact number, mm-hmm. but somewhere between that. And the people who hold all the power levers, or at least did hold the power levers, are the Alawites, which are kind of like cryptic Christians, you know, they're they're Muslims who celebrate Jesus um, and celebrate Christmas. They and then they drink and stuff like that. And that's Assad's family, and then they're allies with the Christians, and they're allies with the Druze, and they're allies with the Shias, and you know, they form a coalition. They band together um, against the Sunnis, which causes the Sunnis to band together. So those, that's the reason why groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1980s in in Syria the Muslim Brotherhood was like the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria was is like unique in terms of the Muslim Brotherhood like they were a lot more um, radical and violent and bigger in Syria than they were in other countries Mm -hmm. and what fostered the creation of of a Muslim Brotherhood that took that form because in other countries they're not the Muslim Brotherhood's not really necessarily violent at all. Like a lot of them are just like rich guys, or like rich landowners, and that's like their political vehicle. Mm-hmm. But the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria was very violent and very radical. But what fostered that, well, you, I think, was just the political system that was set up. Yeah. Will Will you indulge me in a quick conspiracy or fun topic that hits home? And you know, in the in the top of this uh, uh, podcast, you said you know sometimes people. Uh, mention that balkanization may be a solution or perhaps just a an, an inevitability here in the United States for people to just straight up not kill each other because we're so politically fractured uh, and culturally fractured as a nation, or at least that's the pessimist way to look at it. Um, would you say that efforts like you know social media manipulation, are ways to uh, our external influences to try and get us to balkanize faster, much like how you know 
because uh, we already have the political conditions and the, the ticking time bomb, so to speak, internally. We just need that kind of ec- external influence to push us over the edge. Do you think that that's perhaps uh, relevant to this conversation? <laughs> I don't know. Why? Who do you think is that external influence? Social media? Well, you know, if you, if you want to ask the liberals, it's Russia and, you know, doing uh, bots on Facebook and shit. But, you know, it's it's different with the United States because, you know, it's, <laughs> as as far as like, external influences on, on, you know, other countries go, we're like the number one perpetrator there. So it's kind of hard to, you know, come after the king in that respect, <laughs> you know, uh, like we're the we're the top dog in well, that respect. Well, so, well, what's interesting is that. Um, I mean, the U.S. has like the largest track record of meddling in other people's elections and fostering this type of division within the countries. And when it comes to Russia, right. you know, Russia has had their own problems with mm-hmm. with um, you know, Russia is a humongous country. It's not right. homogeneous at all. You know, look at right. the look at their own wars throughout the 1990s in Chechnya. It can happen anywhere, but to go back to the conspiracy of outside or people who want to balkanize the United States. I don't think that anyone wants to balkanize the United States who's in power. I don't think that 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 is a goal for anyone because I think the powers that be, they need the United States as a whole to keep the power afloat. They need a tax base. They need Mm. this giant country to keep all of our programs running, mm-hmm. like to keep you know all the power levers in place, um, you wouldn't be able to. I don't think you'd really be able to have like a Fed or have um, just this massive spending without a population of three hundred and whatever million people. What are we? Three hundred twenty million mm-hmm. people now. Three hundred fifty million people now. Three thirty. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Whatever that is with like a large capital of people who are educated and who are able to um, provide enough labor and services that um, back up the U.S. dollar. I don't think that the powers at B want that system to go away at all. There's a lot of reasons why people are so divided in the United States right now. I think a lot of it has to do with income inequality. And the um, I think that's probably one of the biggest issues. And then very different cultural values in different parts of the country and like in urban centers and in in more rural areas you know what makes people so radical it's just the levers of power like people become way more intense into politics whenever there's a presidential election like that's when people really start to care and that's because you know their team could become president and they can have their guy in power but i think it's government that just makes everyone so uh, like having control of the levers of power and being able to, um, you know, push your agenda, whatever that be. What makes well, more of a reason for you know so for our secularized. and so more more of a reason for our adversaries to do, try and do things to balkanize us because you know that would effectively weaken the United States and their hegemony. Just a thought. <laughs> yeah, sure. Why not? I think we have a. I think we do a pretty good job on that on our own, though. <laughs> yeah, thing. we're doing. Like, I don't think I don't think we need foreign. Honestly, <laughs> if there were like foreigners who were really blatantly doing that, then at least we'd have some common enemy or something like that to produce nationalism. Yeah. Hey, yeah. 
when after 9-11 and you know i strongly disagree with all the policies that were made after the after 9-11 and the policies that led to 9-11 however come on man you would drive down the street in every single house in the most liberal area in new york would have american flags they look like you you look like you're you know driving down rural kentucky or something like mm-hmm. that that's, that's right all the patriotic paraphernalia that would be hanging outside people's doors and like even yep. the most like liberal areas like park slope um mm-hmm. it's really you know people were holding doors to i mean people still do that people are still generally nice you know uh i live in like a pretty very progressive part of the country and you know i'm not super progressive or anything like that but i don't go outside and fight people over politics at all like <laughs> yeah. i get along yeah. with pretty much everyone no matter what their politics are even if i like strongly strongly disagree like most people in america are nice generous people who mm-hmm. don't um who are not trying to like get into fights over politics i think yeah. social media largely does that to us um yeah just because like you're in i mean there's so many different reasons and I don't know. There's probably people who are who are more well spoken than I am who who tackle these reasons why we're so divided. But I disagree. I don't think that there's a, a threat of a country who of an external actor right now in America who's driving the polarization in the U.S. I really think that's yeah. our own. Our well, that's own, that's uh, what the uh, that's what the Democrats of 2016 had. You thought that that it was Russia. I mean, that's what know? the Republicans will have you think in China with China. Yep. So. So we're just blaming external actors on our own. Well, if ourselves. only we could just find a common enemy that we can all hate. Why can't we all just hate the same country? That's how we solve all these problems. We just got to find a common country to hate all together, and then we'll we'll be a nation again. We'll be a nation. I'm telling you, under man. God. Don't 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 preclude the don't preclude the disclosure event of aliens as being that catalyst for us all to just band together aliens will pop yeah. up or maybe there are no aliens and they just make it up <laughs> you know maybe it will be zombies who knows maybe it will maybe. be maybe it could be zombies zombies is another good one maybe everyone who took the vaccine will turn into a zombie and the unvaccinated will be the ones who fight them off right well the the anti-vaxxers sure would like that situation yeah. i think they they'd have the biggest i told you so they had the best uh, immune systems ever. yeah <laughs> um <laughs> all right so let's just get back, back to, to, Yugoslavia. To, to the <laughs> Yugoslavia. All right, because we kind of went off the rails. So let's get back actually to the current conflict because I think we can go too far off the rails. And I would actually want to put a pen into this, put a pen in this, and maybe we can talk about um, the escalation of like the, the, the actual breakup in future episodes. Would you want to do that? Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Because I know that I don't want to start getting into Kosovo um, and like other, and we're gonna have to if you want to talk about yeah, that action. If we want to keep yeah. it going, because I think that'll be just too much in one episode. Um, but we can kind of divide it if you guys are interested in going, doing a deeper dive into this subject. And this is more meant to be kind of like an intro to the conflict, um, just so everyone's like kind of on the same page when they listen to it. If we get into more. Um, so we get into more like deeper things that people have the base level understanding of of the conflict but i want to pull back to the 
Biden administration and the possible policies of why that were why the United States actually does seem to have a more pro uh, Bosnia policy, and the U.S. is currently threatening to put sanctions on the Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Serbian leaders. Um, the Republic of Srpska leaders. And it was interesting because during last election, Biden was trying to win votes from Bosnian, Bosnian Muslim diasporas in the U.S. And he had a letter to the Bosnian Muslim diaspora entitled Joe Biden's Vision for America's Relationship with Bosnia Herzegovina. And hold on, Bef- before you continue, wrote, wait, wait, before you continue, this feels a lot to me like that one episode that we did when we looked at uh trump's uh website to see like the types of uh uh cultural groups that he was going after and we found out that he was like uh you know courting the the chaldeans (laughs) do you remember that yeah that's exactly what it is so this feels a lot like that you know the fact that what it is i mean i i i have no idea what the the population of bosnian muslims are in the u.s but I can I can almost bet based on our you know analysis of Trump's courting the Chaldeans here in the United States that this group of people probably made up some important district in some important swing state somewhere. <laughs> uh, I can I can I can probably bet on that. <laughs> Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. So 
I think I'm not sure where there is a high population of uh, Bosniak Muslims in in the United States that would swing an election. I I don't either. Michigan? But when we looked up, I'm assuming like a place like Michigan or Wisconsin or we'd have Detroit, to look that up. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, well, when, I'm when, presuming I'm presuming a Rust Belt state. Yeah, those were. I mean, when, when we did this on the Chaldeans, when we did this on the Chaldeans, that I didn't even know that Chaldeans still existed, right? Um, it turned out to be that they were like uh, an area. Um, uh, they they held some 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 sway in like Detroit area, right? And you know that was Trump trying to flip Detroit, you know, in his favor. That I mean, that could be uh, that the Chaldeans, for record, are, are like descendants of like the Babylonians, right? Right. They're like some ancient peoples that you would read about in the Bible that Can I had no idea still existed at this point. Yes, but there's a, a mega delay. So, but they're the descendants of the of the of the Babylonians, right? <laughs> yeah. Did you say it? Did you just answer that? Sorry, there's a mega there's a mega delay. We're having we're starting to have internet issues, so we might wrap this up. But um, it's interesting because he he had a letter that he wrote to the diaspora, and you know was, he was just saying the main crux of the letter is like, hey, listen, Trump neglected this area. He didn't give a shit about it, and he doesn't care about our NATO allies anymore. And we want to get engaged back into this area, so vote for me now i'm sure there's a lot more interest other than votes because it seems like insignificant i bet if you looked it up you know bosnian votes bosnian bosniak muslim votes um most likely would probably go to biden anyway right because i think most muslims in america predominantly vote for democrats maybe i'm completely wrong about that but if i bet on that that would be the case hundred i just looked it up 100 and as of the 2010 census there's 125,793 bosnian americans but bosnian americans doesn't necessarily mean bosniaks so it's a smaller proportion of those and it's estimated that as the 2020 census there's somewhere between 300 and 350,000 americans who are either full or partial bosnian descent living in in the country again that's not Bosniak Muslims, the specifics that we were talking about. But I did find something interesting is that the city of St. Louis, Missouri, and the metropolitan areas holds the largest proportion of them. So was was St. Louis or, or Missouri generally uh, one of those toss-up states? I forget. No, not really. Missouri wasn't really up for grabs. There, I mean, maybe on a pipe dream because there are large urban. There's two large urban areas in Missouri. Um, you know, being Kansas City and then St. Louis. So maybe it is, but I mean, that, I'm pretty sure Missouri solidly goes red every single election, unless I'm mistaken about that. Maybe maybe well, so if I, those cl- elections are closer than I think they are. Yeah. So it went it went very much um, red this time around 2020. It was um, he he won by a 15.4 percent margin which was actually lower, 3.1% lower than his 2016 margin, um, but it was still better than any any nominee other than Ronald Reagan in 1984, any Republican in 1984. So it went very, very red, 
uh, with the exception of the population centers, which go figure, uh, one of them is uh, the uh, St. Louis, <laughs> which went to Biden. So yeah, maybe that maybe this is part of his like uh, that was part of his strategy. To- well, every every urban center goes to Democrats usually. That's not that's nothing new. I don't know. I feel like the I feel like that's not. It's just a theory that it's one of the reasons is to gain support from the Bosnian Muslim diaspora. But is that? To, I don't think that's big enough to really affect the. Yeah, there's definitely election. something else going on. There's there's definitely something else, and I guess I'd really have to ask someone who knows what they're talking about to <laughs> to yeah. get the lowdown and why the United States is is uh, why the Biden administration seems to be more interested in in the Balkan regions and. Bosnia and, and all these countries, it, it could just be a NATO thing because a lot of these countries are um, potentially, you know, there's some countries in NATO, uh, Montenegro and Slovenia, I think, are both in Navy, NATO. And all the Western, all the, um, excuse me, Eastern yeah. countries are like, um, I forgot. Geography, my geography sucks on this. Uh, I'm going to look it up. Balkan NATO members. So Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia are all um, talking about, we're, we're talking about it in 2002, and then 2004 they became part of NATO. And then if you're thinking about EU, which is what I was thinking about, um, EU Balkan states, uh, all of the eastern ones are. Uh, so that is... Obviously Greece, but they're not necessarily part, not exactly part of it, but Bulgaria and Romania and Croatia. And if I'm missing one, apologies. No, yeah, I think not that, all of them. I, th- I think that's it. Um, I, a lot of these countries are, I think Macedonia is North on Macedonia. Like, <laughs> North, yeah, excuse me, North Macedonia is on Otherwise a, they're going to take um, over Greece. <laughs> Some of these countries are on um, like pathways to EU, to EU membership, where they have to hit like certain numbers. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what those metrics are, but man, I think, man, I think it was Macedonia. Man, I forget. Man, I'm terrible at uh, memorizing things, but or retaining information. But I think it was Macedonia who's on, who's been on like a 10 year plan or something like that. And then or might have been Montenegro right. that. who's on that plan. But mm-hmm. a lot of these countries are trying to get their you know what I think it is Montenegro. They're they're trying to get their EU accession process and they've applied back in two thousand eight. Um But it's interesting though, because a lot of the I don't think a lot of I think Europe cares less than America right now about what's going on in Serbia. Or what's mm-hmm. not in Serbia, but what's going on in right now with this possible secession? I think I don't really think I think everyone's worn out. Well, here's here's the reason why I think we might be interested here, and it has to do with the last conversation that we had about the border crisis um, uh, in Poland and in Belarus. Because if you remember from that episode, I talked about how uh, the Belarusian 
um, armed forces had a training exercise with the Russians and the Serbians. And again, that's with the Serbian state, the actual country of Serbia, not the Serbian um, entity within Bosnia and Herzegovina, right? But kind of hard to deny that link there because, you know, those Serbs would obviously be pretty closely aligned with the actual state of Serbia and potentially the that mythology idea of the greater state of Serbia. And since Serbia has that very close connection with Russia and there is a current crisis uh, in Belarus where at, at the very least it appears that Serbia would align with Belarus uh, because they were doing training exercises with them, it makes sense that the U.S. would want to try to preempt a uh, any any um, any fucking about in Bosnia by Serbians, you know, because that would present some security risks uh, generally in the EU uh, and for NATO in general. And I think that might have something to do with it, if I were to guess. Yeah, I think you're on. I think you're. I think you're on to something. Um, let's cover this in future episodes because you know, I want to uncover more and I think there's more history that we need to go over anyway, mm-hmm. but let us know if you want us to continue on this topic. I think it's a good thing to maybe concentrate on for the remainder of the year. Um, as you guys know, Danny and I are both traveling over the next couple of months or not months, like next couple of weeks. Um, so Danny's moving to Puerto Rico, Right. That is correct. Yeah, going to Puerto Rico. So Danny's moving, and then I'm going to be... I have some personal stuff I need to take care of. So I'm not going to be available for the next week, uh, week of Thanksgiving. So I think we're not going to have an episode. We're going to try to figure out times to record and get this thing up. So we plan on doing a couple of more episodes uh, before the end of the year. We're just not exactly sure when we're going to be able to find time to record these episodes. Right. But Which we'll, we'll figure that'll it out. That'll also affect when through. they drop, too. So if you start seeing it come out on yeah, so. days, that's probably why. But keep posted. We'll let yeah, you know. <laughs> but we're, we're going to try our best to get episodes out there. So just hold. If you don't see one for maybe two weeks, just hold your keisters. We'll, we're working on it. It's just a matter of getting finding time to record them. And then... Um, yeah, we'll, we'll try our best. But let us know if you want us to continue t- taking this topic down. Um, we're also planning some episodes on the Korean War. So if you guys want us to concentrate on this, we can push the Korean War episodes to, um, I guess, after we finish these. And then we can just take it from there. Anything else to add? Nope. All right. All right. Peace, everyone. Thanks for listening. Peace. And uh, if you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show. Back to Bajna Kavlaga. Kovaglav. Bajna Kovaglav.
feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.